Podcast. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westcott demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. We're talking a movie from 2007. The best year for movies ever. Available on HBO Max, No Country for Old Men. Let me ask you a question. You're walking along and you look down and there on the ground is a quarter. Do you pick it up? Yeah. Oh yeah. Frugal mom. Why would Anton Chigurh leave the dime on the floor for Ed Tom to find when he goes into Llewellyn Moss's death hotel room after hours? Wait, wait. Oh, and left the dime. A a telltale dime so that we knew that he worked the screws loose in the vent with a dime. It seemed unnecessary, and a dime would probably, give or take, equate to a quarter these days. Why would you leave it there? You'd pick up a quarter. I'd pick up a quarter. The worst thing about no country for old men. Is this dime detail? Yep. And the superfluousness of it? It's it's the biggest error and the most obvious ham-handed scene in the entirety of this movie. You mean in this otherwise perfect movie, according to Roger Ebert? As cited by Roger Ebert, who said that this was the Coen brothers at the height of their power. I always kind of assumed it was a detail left in for our benefit, right? So that we know that there's this calling card back to... (laughs) Calling card. Sugar. But he needs those. If anyone needs pocket change, it's Anton Sugar. I mean, I see what you're saying, but he deliberately picks out the quarter. He has a pocket full of change. He weights it in his hand before choosing the the quarter and noting its date before he does so for the coin toss. Yep. In the gas station. What is he eating in the gas station? Peanuts. Are those peanuts? Uh huh. Why is the wrapper detail? Is the wrapper uh, detail not ham-handed? It's not. There's just there's otherwise aside from that scene, which is kind of a joke. There's not an ounce of fat on this movie. It's And everything that you think, like where your mind wanders or whatever, that's your fault. There's nothing left to chance. And that thing unwinding and they're both staring at it on the counter is the most tense thing ever. <laughs> Au contraire, his whole life was left up to chance. Who, Chigurh's? Well, yeah, but he is the administrator of fate. Of of, of his own fate? Well, yeah, and, and I guess the people that he's contracted to find and morally obligated on some level to kill. Okay. So Brian posed the question. He thinks it was on purpose. I think it was authentic. Does Anton Sugar purposely choke on his peanut? (laughs) No, he's outraged that the idea that this person would let family and fate decide that his ultimate purpose in life was to run a gas station and live in the house out back on behalf of his wife's parents. Okay. Okay. The reason I disagree with that, if he's literally scoffing, why would a person with no social decorum try to cover it up by pretending he's choking on a peanut? I'm not sure. How do you figure he covers it up? He's scoffing. Instead of doing it to his face, he clears his throat as if he's choking on a peanut. I think it was a human element. So we know because Terminators don't choke on peanuts. They don't have any kind of social decorum. (laughs) I'm saying that that he is continually reinforced as being human 
when his intuitions, when his strategies, when his remorseless killing speak to the opposite, it's very clear that he could, would be infected, that he has to go into the pharmacy, that he has to take care of his leg, that it hurts him all the time when he kicks off his boot in the hotel room, when he takes a little bath and squirts the iodine bottle, you know? A little bath. He's got these bulging, like, massive thighs. Yeah, he is. He's death incarnate for sure, but he's also very human and it makes him all the more terrifying you know as uh reese said it can't be bargained with it can't be reasoned with it with and it will not stop ever until you're dead that's him but it's not a terminator which makes it all the more horrifying as compared to what bubonic plague <laughs> that's my favorite moment when he's reinforcing his kind of supernatural the supernatural yep. nature of the sugar villain because he's basically saying there's no human comparison and yet you're saying that the filmmakers or the storytellers overall are going to great pains to suggest that he is yes and at the same time carson wells is legitimizing himself by being so cavalier and offhanded about saying he's a psychopathic killer but so was plenty of them around and he's like well you've lived a charmed life mr wells but the idea that he would be able to stand up to be an intellectual and physical equal to Anton Chigurh is is something to be said for Carson Wells. But he clearly isn't. I mean, he, no, he's not. With all that he knows about Chigurh, he doesn't anticipate that he's going to show up at his hotel. I guess not. But he was focused on Moss at the time. And he's dealing with Moss and trying to get Moss to partner with him to help him find Sugar. You know, I can let you keep a little bit of the money or whatever. He just, it was the one thing he overlooked because Sugar was hurt and recovering. Still took the time to suss out somehow that Wells was on his tail and find him, know exactly where he was, and then intercept him on his way to his hotel room. So what exactly is Carson Wells' association with this crime? Well, they're both Vietnam vets, and he is the not right tool. When Stephen Root sends Chigurh, hires him to send him out, then he then hires Carson Wells, and Chigurh says, it's, that's foolish. You choose the one right tool. Wait, so he first hires Chigurh, and then he hires Carson Wells to clean Correct. up Chigurh's mess? Because Chigurh's mess, it went south. There is that colossal goat F out in the desert, and the, we're out our money, and the other party is out their product. So they need Carson Wells to rein in Chigurh, having worked with him or against him before. So Stephen Root is what? The conciliary for the Mexican drug cartel? Something like that. He's the, the shady businessman, right, that orchestrates the drug deals and stuff and hires the muscle, presumably. He is razor sharp and a very smart, keen person. He has no tolerance whatsoever for Wells's... An attempt at humor, I presume? <laughs> exactly. And it's hilarious to me because Stephen Root is the exact... Well, all his characters, including in Coen Brothers films, is the exact opposite. Like meek, kind of cute, hapless. He's Milton Wadhams from Office Space. He's pan shot in the freaking Buster Scruggs. That's right. That's oh, what God. I was remembering is, him from. He's actually a really great actor. Never seen him play more serious. <laughs> but it may, maybe your question is what place Carson Wells has in this movie. Yeah, I mean, clearly a three-hander and pretty deftly balanced between the three. By the three-hander, are you referring to Sugar, Ed Tom Bell, the sheriff, Tommy Lee Jones, and Llewellyn Moss? Played by the amazing Josh Brolin, yes. Right, because they do have more or less equal screen time. Tommy Lee Jones is actually a little bit less. But I'm going to argue that, in fact, Carson Wells makes up the third of this triumvirate that is the basic white hat cowboy. 
I think it's unquestionable that the antagonist is Shigur. But I think Moss is the everyman who finds himself. He's kind of the most hapless. Well, wait, that is the last adjective I would use to describe Llewellyn Moss. But he's the one, he's the guy who didn't anticipate this. Like Carson Wells, he's a vet. You were a nom, I was too. What's that making me your buddy? And then uh, Belle says, <laughs> you know, do you think the, the, he this boy Moss knows who's after him? Well, he ought to. He's seen the same things I have and it sure made an certainly made an impression on me. They're all the same. They're all veterans. They all know what they're doing. It's just he wasn't in this from the start. He was pulled in a little bit like Bell. And I think between the three of them, they not only share that military history, but they are components, facets of the traditional modern Western white hat cowboy. Moss is the everyman. Carson Wells is the hero coming in on a white horse and the expert who can do everything, knows all things, and is eminently confident. And then Bell is the broken down, tired, road weary kind of career lawman at the end of his rope for better or worse. And uh, I think those are three necessary components that make up the white hat to Sugar's obvious black hat, even if that black hat is made entirely of hair. (laughs) Like a droopy, like grandma hair hat. Because I I do think No Country for Old Men is the quintessential postmodern Western. And what I know from you is that you saw this movie, I know, because I was there. And then you went on a mission to buy Larry Mahan's cowboy boots (laughs) as a result of this movie. I've got some good ones, too. How are those Larrys holding up? Sitting right behind me in the closet. You sell socks? (laughs) Just white. And Llewellyn says, well, white's all a hoyer. It probably goes without saying, but why are you able to discuss No Country for Old Men with, like, zero notice? Because I watch it all the time. How often? Easily once a month. What? No. And that's within rotation of everything else. So this movie from 2007, which was the best movie in a fantastic year for movies, soared above everything else and found its place in my top five movies of all time. Wow. I mean, who has time to watch any movie once a month? Well, watching it directly? No, I watch it washing dishes. I watch it brushing my teeth on a Bluetooth speaker when I'm in the shower. I mean, not exactly feel-good movie of the century. It, it is relatively narrowly paced in that there are a few bursts of action, but really it's people sitting and talking to each other. The dialogue is fantastic. As we know, only the Coen brothers can churn out. It was nominated for Best Screenplay. I think this won Best Screenplay. Uh, they've been nominated like like seven times. I think they've won twice. It's got such subtext. And like I said, every word has purpose. And if you change it on them, they don't They don't stand for it. Josh Brolin talked about his only improvised scene in this entire movie. And that's when he's standing under the tree, having just opened the satchel full of money next to the dead last man standing, right? And mm-hmm. his improv line that wasn't in the script was him looking at the money and then looking at the dude and going, hmm, <laughs> that's it. Which is supposed to signify what? That he's going to take the next step? Yeah, the indecision of, yes, he has decided to accept this money and all the challenges associated with it. (laughs) He has to give consent to the universe? Verbal consent, because it is something. He is shrewd and cunning, and he asks Carla Jean, at what point would you stop looking for your $2 million? And then my favorite line of the movie where she's like, well, don't fall down apologizing. (laughs) 
And he says, maybe his most important line, babe, things happen. I can't take them back. He was just, he ended up being a pawn. He was the person who moved the money from one place to another and created a delay in Shakur's life. So he was just delusional to think that he could get away with it? No, I don't think that he had any possible way. Like uh, Ed Tom's friend said, how do you defend against it? Someone who kills a hotel clerk and then strolls in the next day and shoots a retired army colonel? They didn't understand. Neither of those, those two men understood what they were up against. The only thing that Sheriff Bell understood is that he was outmatched. That's leading to the, the theme of this film. I mean, Sheriff Bell is all theme, right? I mean, he is the backbone of this movie. He is the one this movie at large is happening to all around him. He is the old man in a country that's hard on people. In no country for an old man. Correct. Now, look, we're, we're young. We're no, nowhere near Tommy Lee Jones's level. But I understand his position. I understand his feeling of being, being outmatched. And there's no way to keep up. You know, he, he doesn't understand the job anymore. And just crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. Is it his brother in the final, in one of the final scenes? Is that Ellis in the wheelchair? Yeah. My absolute favorite scene of this movie. I think it's his uncle. You know, I hear from you, Loretta writes me pretty regular, keeps me up on the family news. So I think he might have been an uncle. He's a little older than Ed Tom. Ellis seems to have a lot of perspective, but he doesn't have a lot of sympathy for Ed Tom. You're... You know, this has been happening forever. No, he's, he's he knows it from the story about the engines that lit out after, you know, shooting what's his name through the through the lung. What is Ed Tom going there looking for? I think that Ellis is the impartial oracle. He's looking for perspective and validation. And he's like, you know, Loretta says you're quitting. How come you're doing that? I don't know. I feel overmatched. And he gives him wisdom. Can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. That's right. The world's not going to wait on you, and there's a certain there's a certain time in every person's life where you can't keep up. But he's not mystical either. He is absolutely human, obviously, having been shot through the spine and being wheelchair-bound for decades. He is the other old man, and life is really hard for him. It's kind of set up that way, where he, he shows up, and he's like, how'd you know it was me? Well, who else would be pulling up in your truck? And he's like, you heard it? And he's like, huh? You're, you're having fun with me. You know, the cat's heard it, and he's... Definitely human and fallible, but understands and has been around for longer than Ed Tom is and will be one of those people that dies in peace and quiet, but who has regrets and is a little bit bewildered for the rest of their lives. So I think this has been largely and roundly discussed, but do you have problems with missing Llewellyn's death? Yes, I do. With missing it, where like when we saw this movie together, you said that he died, and this is one of my fallibility. I, I, this didn't occur to me. It, it didn't make sense. It bucks convention so much that I didn't realize it was him on the floor. When Bell goes to see him in the morgue, we still don't get a shot of his face. Oh my gosh, look, Llewellyn is dead. He's dressed like all the Mexicans who shot him, and it's if not for that distinctly patterned shirt. Like, yeah, that was, I think you said to me, no, he died. Didn't you recognize his shirt? I was like, no. But so much got dropped. Like, Anto like Shigur just unceremoniously disappears down the street with his obviously human, obviously broken arm. You know, look at that freaking bone. And 
it, it was it was so odd. It just kind of stops once he gets the money. Once he goes away. Once uh, Ed Tom retires to his little horse trailer with his wife or whatever, it, the, it just stops. And you're like, where does it go? Even the ending is so cryptic. It, it sneaks up on you, and maybe your thoughts wander a little bit. And then the credits roll, and you're like, wait, what happened? And so many people felt cheated by this ending. And, and it's disarming that you're not exactly sure what just happened to you. And in that way, I think it's absolutely perfect. <laughs> That's not what I expected to sum up that little tirade. I mean, you're saying it's perfect because it per- it puts us perfectly in Ed Tom's point of view. What's left? Uh, how do we know when the end is coming? Can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you, but what is that thing? How do you know when you've reached the end of your usefulness? Is it better off that his father died, you know, 20 years younger than he is now? Is it better that he has an additional 20 years to see the horrors that he's seen and sit around his trailer in retirement where he's like, maybe I'll help her out around the house. And she's like, you better not. It's intended to make us feel uncomfortable. It's intended to focus on what is the central theme of the film. But it's like the theme is so disruptive and so unsettling that I guess it makes sense. I mean, you got to justify it, right? If you're an old man in a country you don't belong, you find a way to justify everything. Where is Sugar when he's hiding in the shadows? He's not there. I think he's manifested. There's a whole lot of stuff that's very convenient. The fact that he tracks down Carson Wells so quickly, the fact that he knows so much information that's not really possible for him to know, that he suddenly finds the blip on the radar or on the on the tracker that the other guys couldn't find. He is omnipresent, and it's very creepy and disconcerting, which is why I think we're constantly reminded that, no, he is actually human because we're not trying to suggest that this is anything supernatural. He's just so finely attuned. And as he puts it, the right tool to get the job done that, uh, yeah, he, he's not there, but I think he knew to find his way there because there was no time during the shootout for anybody to go unscrewing the grate with the with the dime. How did he know that the money was in the other room in the first place? Did he go around to Llewellyn's room after shooting the clerk who said, this got two double beds and like find out the other room that he rented and went around and saw the grate removed? How did he know? He just knew. It makes Sugar the obviously the most noteworthy and remembered character because it took three of them, Carson Wells, Ed Tom Bell, and Llewellyn Moss, to comprise the protagonist, but the antagonist was all-knowing and omnipresent, and he could carry his own all by himself. What, do, what are your thoughts on Carla Jean? I think Carla Jean is, well, she's the stakes, obviously. She's the thing to live for. She is beautiful and, and well-intentioned, you know, and, and tells... Bell, where to find Llewellyn, even though it's too late, just wants to help, promise not to hurt him, believes in her husband. He can take all comers uh, as much as he's kind of a punk to her. You know, she's just like, where are you going, baby? And like, where'd you get the pistol? And she doesn't have a lot to add, but she's the most human to where these people that have an idea that they are something more than they are. I think Bell knew what he was up against, but Wells and Llewellyn Moss underestimated Sugar so much that they tried to play opposite his game, tried to strong arm him, and just couldn't do it. Whereas Carla Jean refused to play ball whatsoever. It got them ultimately to the same place because this is that kind of movie. But she's just like, no, I, I know you was crazy when I saw you sitting there. And I ain't going to call it because it ain't up to the coin. It's up to you. And she knew her fate the second she walked in the room. And it didn't matter because she had nothing 
really to live for, with her husband gone, having just buried her mom, and bills aplenty to pay. She doesn't question Llewellyn, his love and his commitment to her for a nanosecond. She says, it ain't like you say it is. Oh, yeah, not like you say. When, when Chigurh, in his twisted logic, tells her Llewellyn had an opportunity to save you and instead he chose to save himself. He made a promise to her husband to kill her. It didn't make sense. Now, and when he tries to explain it, because Carla Jean is so pure and good, she's not going to try to make sense of his lunacy. Right. I mean, his argument's pretty convincing. You're like, yeah, Llewellyn's kind of selfish. He was kind of greedy. You know, he was um, overly confident, cocksure. But like... She's like, no, that's how you see the world. And I choose to see the world differently. And she takes her death, what I assume to be her death, with dignity and courage. I mean, two of the biggest badasses in this film are Carla Jean and the lady in the trailer residential office. You can definitely see her fear, though. You can see the little waddle tremble a little bit. You know, like he was about to kill her. And she holds, you know, did you not hear me, sir? And then the toilet flushes and Shigur is like, maybe the not, not the time to execute this woman. And you can see the fear on her face at that moment because that was the deciding moment. I don't know. She gave him daggers like I had never seen. She lowers her head a little bit and looks up through the eyelashes and she's like, did <laughs> she is not backing down. I don't know. I didn't see the fear. I saw someone who was so secure in her position. She like stops filing her nails. She's like, excuse me? Yeah, but it speaks more to her courage that she's afraid and still refuses to give up the information. We can't give out no information on the residents. She does. She still doesn't do it. Even like she doesn't care. She works in the office, but he comes and she's not going to compromise her job or her morals. So did I misinterpret respect on Shigur's face? Uh, no, yes, I think that I don't think that he showed any remorse. I think she was in his way and very inconvenient. But it would have been more of a hassle at that particular moment when he can do things like, you know, search the phone records and stuff to find mm. out what n number he calls. It's like it's giving him too much humanity to suggest that he might have found respect for the trailer park manager. I think so. Yeah. Because it's not about character, right? Because the gas station man had character. And he lives a very simple, very honest no, life. No, but he back, was weak. Go to bed, go to, you know. But it's not to say that he was weak because he stared him down too. He was just like, he wasn't going to cower in fear or whatever. He's just like, why would you come back? We'll be asleep. I don't know. It just, he didn't, he was more obviously scared. Yeah, he was more obviously scared. And I felt like the wraith that Anton Sugar is fed on that. The wraith. That's an excellent. Yeah, he is kind of a ring wraith of sorts, like a quarter wraith or a money wraith. <laughs> I don't know. We, we, t we discussed in another review that he was voted the most realistic psychopath in movie history. 400 movies, 126 psychopathic characters. He was number one as the most clinically accurate portrayal of a psychopath. And that's one way to get, a, get an Academy Award. Yeah, but I mean, it was him. He's so great. But if you hear him speak, it's just kind of Javier Bardem. But he's so imposing and that monotone is so terrifying. But I do think that it was everything else. I think it was top to bottom, his otherworldly haircut, the, the outfit where he's always in black, which in Texas in the heat's not, you know, the most functional. The boots were weird. Both the primary weapons were weird. The freaking captive bolt air gun it's the least practical weapon ever. 
Remember he pulls the guy over on the highway and he's like, could you stand still, please, sir? So he can knock his brains out. It's so impractical with that giant tank that hisses and stuff. There's no self-defense. You got to get right up against anybody. So what does he use for longer range jobs? The giant silencer shotgun? That thing doesn't even exist. It's not a real weapon. They make silencers for rifles, for sure. But a shotgun, which is supposed to be a spread weapon, there's no way a silencer is practical. He is a completely otherworldly character. Even Sugar itself by Cormac McCarthy was meant to be, you know, nationally ambiguous. You don't know where he comes from, who he is. He's untraceable. Uh, he has this this uh, keen sort of preternatural instinct. And uh, yeah, he's. I think he is just, he's cowboy death is what he is. <laughs> this guy... Sugar, what's he supposed to be? Ultimate badass? I'd say he doesn't have a sense of humor. I can't make sense of what he says. When he says, do you know how crazy you are? And he says, you mean the nature of this conversation? I don't know what that means. You mean that's just a crazy thing to say? <laughs> and his circular arguments are so crazy. He's terrifying, but he makes a wonderful, amazing villain in what is undoubtedly the Wild West circa 1980. I mean, I love this world. I don't want to be in it. And thankfully, in many regards, you aren't. There was a murder-suicide just up the street, and two detectives came to, our, came to our door, and Brian and I were, like, all eager to help him out and give him footage, and, like, Brian, like, tracked down a car that was in, that was considered the suspect's car. I was like, girls, these are police officers. And they were like, what are you here for? And they're like, we're going to get the bad guys. And the girls are like, get the bad guys, get the bad guys. <laughs> and then like the next day they were, <laughs> I forget what we were talking about, but she, but Plum was like, did they get the bad guys? And I'm like, I'm sure they did. And I think that there's a certain amount of, um, there's this weird innate justice that comes with a certain sense of innocence. And I think that the loss of innocence really does equate to understanding that there isn't truly justice in the world. Yeah, there are no chapter breaks. There's no sense of completion. He's just as adrift in retirement as he is when he's trying to get away from the senseless violence that is part of his career every day. I mean, the whole thing is a rumination on death and aging and the disquieting feeling of things being unresolved. You know, it's always the big last case. You know, I'm too old for this shit, Murtaugh. And, you know, this can't be my last case in seven. And this idea that you got to tie up those loose ends before you go. Ed Tom Bell gets none of that. Poor Ed Tom. You can just see it on Tommy Lee Jones' face. Oh, he's so good. This, I mean, I, I always thought it was a fugitive, but this, I, I'm pretty sure that he just showed up, read some lines, and they were like, that, I mean, that's him. <laughs> it, it seems like this character so perfectly befits his personality. I just, I can't see anyone other than Tommy. It, it seems like it, it must have been written for him. It was just so obvious. Yeah, either he was custom made for it or the role was custom made from him. But either way, it, it makes total sense. But they went after Javier Bardem, which would not have seemed like an obvious choice to me. Nope. They also went after Mark Strong, who also plays a very good bad guy, albeit he's, a, you know, British. And uh, Wendell, uh, my favorite, Garrett Dillahunt, who had a, a tremendous year, back-to-back -back years in 2007, 2008. He auditioned five times for Llewellyn Moss before ultimately settling for Wendell. Oh, interesting. Really? Josh Brolin just came in with his rugged good looks? 
Yep, I'm telling you, man, there was just something in the air in 2007 for these sort of gritty, close-to-the-earth sort of movies. We talked in There Will Be Blood about the fact that these two films shot on the same location at the same time and went head-to-head for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, where it couldn't have been anything other than one of those two movies. Just like a weird movie multiverse happening. Yeah, but it wasn't just me. I wasn't like, I love this movie and no one else loves this movie. It was recognized far and wide and is considered a classic. And it just so happens that one of my favorite movies of all time was recognized for Best Picture 2008 at the Academy Awards. But I will give it my own distinction and award it the best American movie of my adult lifetime. Wow. Some, qu- some real some qualifiers, qualifiers in there. In there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, it's a, but undoubtedly, it's such a classic that has nothing to do with my childhood or with any kind of nostalgia. It's bare and, and difficult and, and confusing and provoking and the best kind of movie as far as I'm concerned. For which you give a totally. Even if it's not your movie, I'm going to say that for me and should be for any fan of cinema, an absolute totally rating. What about you? Them some big words. Uh, yeah, a good. I don't know why. Unconsciously, I gravitate toward this movie. Not every month, but every year. I have a undeniable pull to revisit this film. And I just did so recently and spontaneously. And thankfully, I had a brother standing by to discuss it at my whim. So I give it a good, and that's our discussion on No Country for Old Men, a totally from Wes, a good from Iris. Check out other discussions on orwhatevermovies.com, including There Will Be Blood, Goonies, featuring Josh Berlin, which we didn't reference in this film, The Shawshank Redemption, and 200 plus other reviews at orwhatevermovies.com or wherever you get podcasts. 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric Acid.